And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. Hello, and welcome to the Startup Hustle podcast. This is Steve Hoffman here. I am your host today for a four-part special on Silicon Valley investment trends, what's going on right now in Silicon Valley, and what to expect in the future, in the decades to come. I have with me today a very special guest. He's a venture capitalist. He is a visionary, and he has invested in a lot of startups. His name is David Hornick, and he is the founding partner of Lobby Capital. But before we go deep with David, let me introduce myself to those of you who don't know me. My name is Steve Hoffman, and my nickname is Captain Hoff. I am the captain and CEO of Founderspace, one of the world's leading startup incubators and accelerators. I am also the author of three books. So the first one is Make Elephants Fly, published by Hachette, and it is all about the process of radical innovation. My second book is Surviving a Startup, published by HarperCollins, and it is about everything entrepreneurs need to know to build their companies, survive, and come out on top. And my latest book is The Five Forces That Change Everything. This is about how technology will transform our society, our business, and our lives. Everything from artificial intelligence and nanotechnology to CRISPR gene editing technology and brain brain computer interfaces. So how will these new technologies reshape humanity? Now, I want to thank our sponsor fullscale.io for bringing us this show and if you need software engineers and you need it done fast and you need really quality people, fullscale.io is the place to go. So David I want to welcome you to the show, and I have known you because you have been at August Capital for years, and you're a very visible person in Silicon Valley, one of the more visible VCs. I want to ask you to tell the audience a little about your background. Sure. And if you're if you're Captain Hoff, that makes me Captain Horn, which yes. I am. Yes, Captain a, Horn, Hornblower. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, thrilled to be here. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I've been in the venture business now for 21 years. I I got to the venture business having been an attorney and I took a pretty windy route. Uh, graduated with a degree in computer music from Stanford. Then I went to law school. Then I was a litigator, but I eventually found my way back to Silicon Valley in the beginning of the internet experience and uh, had an incredible time there representing startups. And uh, one day after the Evite board meeting, uh, a partner at August Capital, a guy named Dave Marquardt said, hey, have you ever thought about the venture business? And I said, yes, count me in. Um, and he said, you know, lawyers aren't great at this, but we like you and ultimately offered me a job. And as I say, that was over 20 years ago. So uh, 
I must have done enough right to stay in this business. I think you have, and you have a reputation of being very founder friendly. So that seems to be your theme. You really get in there and help founders. And with your new firm, Lobby Capital, tell us a little about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, what happened was 15 years ago, I guess 16 years ago now, um, I had been going to a bunch of conferences and I thought that they were kind of missing the point. Like the point to me of going to these conferences was to meet amazing people, was to build real relationships. And yet you were spending all this time sitting in a dark conference room. And so uh, I started my own conference called the Lobby Conference, which is all the conversations you had in the lobby instead of going into the conference room. And, um, and so I literally last week had our 15th Lobby Conference. Uh, after, uh, after a year and a half of being at home, we all gathered together in Hawaii and had this incredible gathering of founders and entrepreneurs and investors. And so uh, when we finished investing August 7, our seventh fund, the question was, do we raise August 8 or do we do something new? And I thought, you know what, I'd like to I'd like to lean into this lobby community. And so I created Lobby Capital, which is really the successor to August Capital. We'll continue to manage the August funds, but all new investments will be lobby capital investments. Well, it sounds fascinating. And I look forward to hearing what your investments are and how it's going. Speaking of that, you know, we're looking out. We've seen a lot happen over the past decade. A lot of amazing companies have IPO'd. A lot of great investments are in the pipeline. What do you see coming in the, in the next year or two? What are the areas you're really excited about? Well, I mean, the, the challenge in the venture business is that as you're investing, you have to hope you can figure out what's coming in six, eight, 10 years down the road, not, you know, next year. <laughs> I'm not a late stage investor. Late stage investors can say, oh, this is going to be an amazing IPO next year. I'm a series A investor. I'm a seed investor. I invest uh, in great teams that have an idea and hope that it becomes big and interesting. And that's a, and that's a very different thing. So, so if, um, yeah. If you're placing your bets right now, what, yeah. and you're looking out eight or 10 years, which, which sectors, what type of companies, what technologies are you really focusing on? Yeah, I think that's a great, great question. I mean, I'll tell you, uh, last week we took GitLab public and GitLab was a, what an astonishing company, an amazing company. And when we made that investment, it was, hey, here's the, the future of DevOps, which, which Seems very boring, but at the end of the day, every company is becoming a software business. And so if every company is becoming a software business, software tools are, are going to be big. And in fact, you know, GitLab is out, out of the gates at a $15 billion business. So that's an amazing thing. I think there's lots more work there. Like there's lots more opportunity to make the development process work to find amazing, great software that will help build software, right? And so I'm for sure excited about that. Um, I think that there will be a continued, you know, surge in fintech businesses and insuretech businesses. We're just getting started, but there's just been a huge amount of value. Uh, I was on the board of bill.com. And again, 10 years of that business, helping small businesses to understand and uh, their finances, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and now it's a $30 billion business. But there's lots more to be done there in streamlining uh, finance uh, for small businesses, for medium businesses. How do you deal with insurance and, and, and making insurance better? So 
Uh, those are a couple of places I think are going to be continue to be big, exciting spots. I agree. I mean, those are those are we're always going to need new companies with new technology to improve those areas. And as you know, with the tools and software, you know, for corporations to manage this, you know, traditionally they haven't had, you know, IT departments are overwhelmed right now. Things are changing so fast. Um, you know, we're everybody's going to the SaaS model and to the cloud. They need support to do that and how they do that. In terms of fintech, which is a really exciting area, you know, we've seen so much progress in banking and insurance and other sectors of fintech. Um, those, of course, they're they're all going online. They're all going digital. They're all being disrupted right now. Um, are there, you, like if you had to pick out a couple startups right now, you don't have to have funded them, but they're they're out there right now. They've been funded recently that you think are going to make a big change in these areas. What, which startups would those be? Uh, um, it's a, I mean, I think it's an interesting question and I certainly am always looking and tracking. We funded a company called Spring Labs and what Spring Labs is doing is is taking um, taking the blockchain to identity in the fintech space, right? And ultimately, they'll do things like disrupt FICO, right? FICO is a ridiculous thing. When you think about it, oh, I have a score that's going to determine whether I can get a mortgage or a credit card, and it's controlled by an individual company based on information that you can't really dispute. Um, so Spring is saying, look, at there. you exist, you should control your identity, it should sit on a blockchain so it's immutable, and every one of these financial institutions should contribute to that uh, description of you, right? So, hey, I can tell you that David makes X number of dollars a year. Hey, I can tell you that David has a home which has a mortgage of Y, et cetera. I can, t I can tell you as the electric company that he pays his bills on time. That's a much better system, ultimately, for understanding the financial predictability of any given individual. So Spring Labs is building this great infrastructure to create on the blockchain uh, identity services that will manage you know, human identity for fintech. And I think that that's a big, huge opportunity. And I guess I would say that... In the end, I, I think that the blockchain is going to be a powerful tool and it's going to be primarily in the identity space, right? So we're going to continue to see things, right? Ultimately, Bitcoin is, a, is, a, is an amazing wonder, but it seems to me Ethereum has the capacity to transform these sort of enterprise solutions. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm going, to take, I'm going to take Spring Labs on one end, I'm going to take Ethereum on the other. Okay, that's that's your bet. So, it's really interesting now. The crypto world's going nuts. You know, uh, the, 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 these altcoins are shooting through the roof. Bitcoin's shooting through the roof. We've never seen anything like this. I, you know, the skeptic in me always wonders. You know, some of these uh, coins. You know, Dogecoin, for example. You know, it was built on a meme. Uh, now it's supposedly become more than that with the endorsement of Elon Musk. But you know. Are a lot of these bubbles? What's your thought? Or are they, you know, are they the future? Are you putting your money in, like, you seem to be a, a supporter of Bit, uh, Ethereum uh, and probably Bitcoin, but outside of those, are you investing in them? No, look, and I wouldn't say that I, I, I am a supporter of, uh, of either, to tell you the truth. Okay. I think that by and large, the coin economy is, is not an economy that's built on top of innovation in the sense that 
is it an innovative mechanism that allows one to buy and trade and transfer these, these coins? Yes. But are they being used for something beyond the trading of a coin? No. Ethereum is in theory built to do that, which is why I think that if there's going to be a winner here, it's going to be Ethereum, which is going to be, okay, great. We're going to start enabling other things like smart contracts on top of Ethereum. Bitcoin is not designed to do that, and therefore it's really a currency. And I, re and I think, frankly, that with the vast majority of the activity that's going on, it's really, uh, you know, it's currency speculation. That's not a business and it's not an investment. It's just speculation. So no, I'm not really a believer. Um, I think that ultimately the blockchain has powerful attributes that will work for some interesting things, um, but by and large is a kind of slow, crappy database. You know, you're playing the contrarian here to what the general trend is, but I agree. I mean, I agree with you. The, it, the primary use uh, for the blockchain right now is what it was designed for, which is enabling these fiat currencies, these alternate currencies, and they are the biggest casino in the world. So everybody's in there, they're betting on them. It's going sky high. You know, it remains to be seen where the ultimate value lies. And I can understand if, you know, a dominant coin, let's say it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, one that really has traction out there, uh, there's a there's a place for those. Those, you know, already some, you know, third world countries are adopting Bitcoin as their their standard. We uh, there's something, uh, you know, when uh, when a technology gains mass adoption, there's utility there. You know, it can be a potential store of value and other things. But like you say, most of these altcoins out there, these secondary coins, they have no value at all other than the speculation. And I think people are 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 playing, it's a very risky bet right now. So I've also seen the blockchain like you out there in the corporate world. And, you know, every corporation was like, we're going to use the blockchain. We're going to adopt the blockchain. And, you know, they all adopted it, but I haven't seen many blockchain products. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you said, it's a crappy database. It's, you know, most corporations, most governments, most in institutions want centralized databases. And it is by nature, decentralized, which is what they don't want. So, Correct. yeah, so those are some of my thoughts. Now, you know, this whole DeFi space, you know, and then there's NFTs. Are there some interesting things you're seeing besides the betting on crypto that could come out of this? And if so, what are those? Well, the NFT thing is an interesting thing, by the way. I, I am... Um... I'm a lover of art and a collector of contemporary figurative art. And I, and I, and I think it is incredible and powerful. Um, and it turns out that actually over time, it has been an economically good investment to buy contemporary art. It goes up in value. I don't do it for that reason. I do it because it sings to me because I think it's, uh, it's, I think it's amazing and it makes me feel happy. Um, I have not seen that same kind of experience in the NFT world. I find the NFT world is a very different experience than this idea of the, because there are those who say, great, this is the future of art, right? The future of art is in NFTs. I don't think that's right yet. I think there's a capacity for digital art. I've seen amazing digital art, but this is, but what, what, but what is driving the NFT economy is not really amazing digital art. 
what it really is is much more akin to the collectibles world, right? And so now, who am I to question the collectibles world? There are millions of people who are collectors of things and they do it for personal reasons or economic reasons. In fact, I have a collection of Alice in Wonderland books, hundreds of different versions of Alice in Wonderland. I don't do it for economic value. I do it because I think it's a fascinating thing that different illustrators have illustrated the same story in, in unique, unique and intriguing ways. But there are people who collect baseball cards because they think it's an asset and it's gonna go up in value. There are now many people who are collecting sneakers because they view it as an asset, it's gonna go up in value. And now there are people who are collecting basketball clips because they think, and they are correct in some instances, that it's going to go up in value. And so um, I do think it's interesting. Like I do think that there is a natural you know, desire for humans to collect things. And there's a natural desire in those collecting collections to, to hope that they are more valuable than collecting dust or in this instance, uh, you know, digital dust. <laughs> and so, um, so I think it's a thing to watch. I think it's a thing to watch, but I don't think of it as the future of art. I think of it as the future of collectibles. That I think is very well said. The, and, and I would concur with you on that. You know, it's really interesting right now. Uh, because we're in a time where everybody's so connected and we're connected online and we see these viral memes take off and we see these online communities and kind of these nexuses of influence sprouting up all over the place. And when you look at NFTs, they feed off those. So mm -hmm. it's a natural cycle. Like a lot of the, the NFTs that are going for lots of money are like memes. They're crazy little videos or things or images that, you know, really like you would just look at them once ago, that's silly, but people are bidding them up in like the hundreds of thousands or the millions of dollars for this little yeah. monkey walking around with some music playing. And it, it what, but it uh, comes, it's really, uh, inspired, I think, a lot by, you know, the younger generation out there, younger than you and I, who are out there doing this. And, and they, and it's almost like a game to them. I see it like a community game. You know, they're buying in for status. They're buying in, you know, to see if they can make a buck. They're buying in to be part of this community in this meme. Um, so um, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a strange cultural phenomenon that has emerged from our connected digital world. We're spending more time, more of our identity is tied to this digital world and it's manifesting itself in different ways, a very different way than you, who's an, you know, an art lover of traditional art that you would hang in your home or collecting Alice in Wonderland books. It's very different because those are kind of a more private thing. They're like in your home, they're in, you know, they're you. And these are a very public experience. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, but every time I try and distinguish, oh, here I am and I, see this incredibly beautiful painting by, you know, Amawako Boafa, who's this in meteoric, has had a meteoric rise as a painter. And I try and distinguish it from a, you know, from a crypto punk. It's like, well, you know, what makes that different, right? Why, why, why is my thing different than this other thing? Ultimately, there are lots of people who like both. There's more demand than supply. Therefore the price goes up, right? I mean, so, you know, I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying not to be too much of a slave to my, my old time, you know, painterly views. Although I have to say, I really like paint. 
there's some and there's something physical tangible there you know it's very different than digital i i i'm an art lover too so i know how you feel let's uh look out to the future so there are new technologies coming down the pipeline that are going to radically uh, transform our society who we are um what are some of the the technologies you think that will have the biggest impact, both on business, both on our lives, and as well as our political systems and culture? Hmm. Well, you know, we've been talking about artificial intelligence for a long time, and artificial intelligence in its infancy is just, you know, A, B kinds of testing, right? I mean, um, but what's coming is something fairly spectacular and dramatically more interesting. But the key to it ultimately is gonna be quantum computing, right? You need more compute power and our machines are getting more powerful. In fact, you know, they Apple announced a new machine today, quite powerful, I immediately bought it because of course I need the faster, more power, not because I'm doing anything with it. I need to, I need better zoom, you know? Um, so computers are getting better, but ultimately it's going to require that 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 factorial change that quantum computing can bring. And we're getting there. Like there are real quantum computers that are coming uh, into production are, are, and are going to really change the nature of how much data one can consume and transform in, uh, in a short period of time. And when that's the case, then we're going to see true artificial intelligence. We're going to see the capacity for machine learning at a scale that we haven't to date. And that will transform literally everything, right? It, and it will create all sorts of problems, right? You've seen it. You've seen these um, faked videos where people are, are, are become things they weren't supposed to be and appear to be doing things. That, and the capacity to distinguish between what is real and what is a digital fake is going to be literally impossible in this future high compute world. We're going to be able to move and predict and transform markets in ways that are really challenging, right, for regulators, particularly with these distributed systems, etc. So um, I think it's going to be great. I think it's going to enable lots of, uh, lots of forward motion and things like health. And I think it's going to be really concerning as it makes possible things like uh, the capacity to to breach all sorts of systems, et cetera. You know, you brought up a lot of stuff there, and I want to yeah. go deeper on some of that. You know, in Dubai, they they I just read that somebody used a deep fake of the bank manager's voice to actually convince people the bank manager was ordering a wire transfer out of the bank of a lot of money, and they got ripped off. The bank got ripped off. So that's like you were saying, these deep fakes are phenomenal. And now it's not just voice, it's video, everything. It can have a lifelike David Hornick out there and nobody would be able to tell if it's you or this, some, some hacker that put it up there. And it could be saying things when you get into the realm of politics and everything else in society, there's room for a lot of monkey business that is, could be serious, you know, serious uh, stuff from you know, defrauding people to uh, causing problems with elections on election night, putting out deep fakes. We're going to have to deal with it. It's going to be very interesting. Before I go further, I want to thank our sponsor, Fullscale.io, for and for really helping companies, startups, and big corporations hire software engineers. They do it faster and better than almost anybody else. So thank you, Fullscale. 
Fullscale.io for being our sponsor. Now back to our subject. We, um, you know, I am looking at, you know, the power of AI and where computing power is headed, as you said. And one thing that you brought up that's interesting is quantum computers. So, you know, I, my understanding of quantum computers, I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding of quantum computers is that they're really good at solving certain types of problems, not so good at solving other types of problems. So for example, you know, if you're doing molecular work and, and chemistry and things like that, maybe thermodynamics, things where you have particles and a lot of, uh, they can model those really well, like no other, you know, so we're going to see lots of new pharmaceuticals and things like this coming out of quantum computers, but other areas that we use traditional processors for, they can actually do better, like running our PCs and doing, you know, all, all you know, that type of work. AI, um, uh, I think AI, when applied to scientific research and more advanced problem solving like that, could definitely take advantage of quantum computing. But with AI applied to like a traditional database, do you know, would, would quantum computing actually be the most effective way to speed that up? No, I, w- I wouldn't anticipate that. I think that this is a compute question, right? It's how do you... Yeah. How do you calculate things quickly? How do you run scenarios quickly? It, you know, those sorts of things. So for example, you know, I saw a fantastic business that was trying to take um, artificial intelligence as applied to chest x-rays to identify cancer, right? And right now the process is that you take a chest x-ray, you give it to an expert, a doctor, she looks at the x-ray and says, oh, this is suspect, this is not, you're fine, right? That's insane, right? The idea that that, that is a human experience as opposed to an artificial intelligence experience is, is, is crazy. And yet computers to this day don't have the, um, the granularity and capacity to in all instances come, come to a good answer. With, with that kind of compute power, you know, machines will be a much better diagnoser of cancer than will humans. And I would assume that across the board, right? Blood workup and DNA testing and all of these things where we're learning things that will make us healthier and safer and all those things. You know, quantum computing will be monumentally powerful in taking a million genomes and information about the health outcomes of those million humans and determining what genomic information could help us diagnose it, et cetera. So I think those are the sorts of futures. Yeah, I agree. And and it's going to be really interesting also in terms of cybersecurity, you know, quantum encryption. We're going to need that. Once we have quantum computers, we're going to need to re-encrypt everything. And quantum communications, they're they're working on that now, with even with quantum entanglement, which I think is beyond myself and most people to figure out whether, you know, whether it's one way or two way or whether it could really work over vast distances. We will see. But so quantum computing is coming. And like you said, we've made a lot of progress really fast. You know, if you compare it to like the transistor, which actually took decades and decades and artificial intelligence, which was, you know, you know, developed in the 1950s and only today, like 70 years later, we're really seeing it, you know, take off. Quantum computers are coming fast. And I think you're right. They're going to be transformational in in the scientific world, in the business world and, and everything we do. So. There are other technologies out there that I also think are really interesting and the potential uh, for both good and uh, evil with them is very high. 
So one of these is brain-computer interfaces. So a lot of people, Elon Musk is a huge champion. He says, we have to merge with our machines. You know, he's worried AI will take over the world. I'm not so worried about that. But um, he thinks that, you know, us, you know, integrating, you know, basically integrating our brains into the cloud is going to be a good thing. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't, I, I don't know when needs to, that one needs to go so far as integrating with the cloud, but but frankly, if you look at mechanical interfaces like your car or your airplane or you know whatever, um, there's a there can be a disconnect between oh here's what I'm trying to accomplish and here's the things I'm physically capable of accomplishing, and then if you take and that's with perfectly able-bodied humans, people have you know either are born with challenges or encounter challenges that make it harder for them to perform those physical tasks but have the mental capacity to continue and so i think that you know human brain interfaces will be powerfully good for things like oh i'm now going to control this car with my brain not i don't need it i don't need to be one with the universe i just want to be able to remove the failings of mechanical interfaces um I can tell you that those are going to be some wild video games, right? When suddenly, because right now, great video game players have the dexterity to play, and and it's a combination of intellect and dexterity. If you remove the dexterity piece, it could just be a question of intellect, or it could just be the question of the capacity of the human brain to function, etc. And so, you know, I think there are lots of things that have this that have this breaking point between what we're thinking and what we're doing, and the ability to shorten that distance will be extraordinarily powerful. And we've started to see some of that, and um, and I see no reason why we won't continue. Yeah. So the possibilities are mind-boggling. First of all, uh, you are right. There's you know the the ability for us to actually interface with our machines without. Uh, just directly from our mind, it, it would be fascinating because not only could you potentially turn lights on and off, operate a PowerPoint, start your car, drive somewhere just by thinking about it, you you know you could potentially the uh, if it's monitoring your thoughts, it could anticipate your needs that you actually need. So when you walk into a room and you're feeling a little stressed out, it's monitoring that and it could be playing just the type of music. And then it could be measuring, getting the feedback from your brain of whether that's actually calming you down or whether that's distracting you. And it could learn like through artificial intelligence and a brain computer interface, how to create an environment that's just right for you to work in or an environment when you want to relax and, and, and talk to somebody in really inter interesting possibilities there. Also, you know, right now we've seen applications of brain computer interfaces for people with locked in syndrome. They're paralyzed. They've suffered a stroke or something. They're completely paralyzed. But now, like you said, they can control machines. They can control robotic arm and feed themselves. They can drive around in a wheelchair. They can send text messages just by thinking. And that's today. They're doing that at, you know, Brown University and Duke and other places. So that technology's here but we're going to commercialize it, right? So it's going to be going out to every, you know, at some point, uh, these, you know, we're going to make these chips small enough, or we're going to have non-invasive devices, you know, like the Muse, but much more powerful. You know, it's a, it's more of a toy right now, but they, they'll get to the point where it can really work. Um, when we have those, and they actually start giving us abilities, like at work, like to do our work faster, to do our work better, to communicate with people, you know, on both a conscious and perhaps even a subconscious level, because you have this brain-computer interface, transferring information between people and between the internet, 
do you um do you see uh, some danger there, especially in terms of privacy, our thoughts? You know, right now, l- look at today, right? We all have these mobile phones, and we've you know accepted a huge intrusion into our privacy, <laughs> tracking everywhere we go, Facebook gathering all this data, potentially selling it off to to people we don't want it sold to. Imagine if they have access to our brain. What do, what type of world do you see and what uh, how would you like it to evolve? Yeah, I mean, look at that. I think that's a reasonable question. I used to joke that, um, you know, we used we talk about, oh, we have our children and we're going to put chips in them so we can track them. And then people came up with the smartphone and they put the chip in their pocket and they were perfectly trackable because they carried it with them, you know. So to a certain degree, people are always willing to trade utility for privacy. And I think this is the same thing here. Um, I think we are far, far away from the capacity of a machine to read our thoughts, right? So I don't think that I'm I'm concerned in the near term about a machine that's reading my brain and says, oh man, I hate that person, <laughs> you know, or-, or <laughs> Reports you know. it to your boss. Yeah, yeah you know, right. You don't uh, have a yeah, boss, exactly. but if you did. <laughs> right, that would be- so the first thing it's going to solve is turn left, turn right, right? Triggers that are, and you know, the one you described, great, which is there's biofeedback, I'm stressed. It can be tracked by certain aspects of one's brain as well as muscle tension. And then there's a feedback loop and I'm less stressed. Okay, those sorts of things. So I'm not worried about those things. I'm, I think that we're a long ways away from it understanding what you're thinking and translating that into some, you know, some outcome. There's a great Saturday Night Live sketch where these researchers have figured out how to translate your dog's brainwaves into what it's thinking. And they put the, you know, they put this thing on the dog and the dog starts saying really offensive political things. <laughs> and the owner's like, no, I don't want to know. We're a long way from that. Yeah. So, so that's, that's a ways out. But you can imagine uh, there's a lot of data you have. Uh, stored in your biofeedback, your brain, you know, all your body. So example, you're walking past a store, you know, that store could literally be getting data on your reaction to what you see in the windows, the window displays. Mm -hmm. When you're watching uh, something, uh, a Netflix movie, when you're watching, you know, browsing websites, once you have these devices attached to you, like, just like now we have the cookies, they're monitoring everything we do on the internet. But this would be monitoring our body and and our reactions to everything we do on the internet. Once we have these devices, it's sort of inevitable that somebody will want to commercialize it that way. Would you feel? Uh, would you wear one of these devices? Would you get an implant? Ultimately, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a believer in technology, and when technology is of sufficient quality and scale, I'm going to use it. Right? I mean, I have to tell you. Um, I have a Tesla Y and I put it in self-driving mode and it makes my drive to my office infinitely better. And, um, and my wife is very freaked out by this and she is not a fan, but would I go back? No, I will never go back to simply driving my own car the entire way because it's much, much worse. So if I can get to that point where suddenly I, you know, my brain is driving my iPhone, my brain hears a text message while I'm driving. I don't have to look at something. All those things, 100%. I'm 100% in. See, there you go. And I think what you're saying is true of most people. 
like the utility always trumps, you know, their other concerns. And, you know, we as as human beings, we have to trust something. So to, to move on, you know, there's a lot of things in society where we trust that it works. You know, we we trust that Apple isn't going to totally abuse our you know privacy, even though they have the potential to do that. Uh, we don't trust Facebook so much because they have, they've kind of dropped the ball in that area. But for the most part, for most of the software applications we do, we trust that, you know, they might use them to make money and they're probably going to use these brain computer interfaces and our data to make money. But we trust that they're not going to do things that are fundamentally against our uh, interests uh, to a point that that. Right. And. And so that's what you're saying. So I think that the, you know, when it comes to AI, when it comes to brain computer interfaces, people are going to take that leap, right? They're, they're going to go for the utility. They're so seductive. They could do so much more. They can perform so much better. Now, I have a, a another question for you. Um, you know, like you said, with, let's say, brain computer interfaces, let's just take that as an example. They could potentially hack your brain. Like if somebody could steal your identity now, in, in the real world, they might, you know, run up bills in your name. That's a bad thing. That's a hassle. But if they could uh, do a read-write in a brain where you can actually download information, uh, even potentially in your sleep, and these are kind of far out ideas, but they're not beyond the realm of speculation. They will happen. What then? You know, and what about governments who want to use these devices uh, potentially to control people, to influence them. Yeah, you're, you're talking about something. Read is one thing, write is a whole other thing. Yes. Right? Am I in any, I am not interested in a device that has the capacity to write the neurons in my brain. That's not, I'm not uh, the memory. I'm not that, I think that's a long ways away and not something I'm comfortable with anytime soon. Read, fine. You want to start reading? Can, do I believe there are controls that will, you know, keep privacy uh, at bay, etc.? Sure, but you're right. Like, right, right is a terrible idea. That's <laughs> yeah, right is a terrible idea. And uh, I imagine there will come a point where we have the technology to actually do that. Like, it's it's going to be here, and we'll, you know, as a society, we're going to have to decide. There are a lot of other technologies that are really interesting. Too many for us to go into, but. I want to ask you, you know, you mentioned AI and right now we're seeing companies like OpenAI really taking big steps toward artificial general intelligence, uh, an intelligence that isn't AI that isn't so narrow, like, you know, our self-driving cars, where it does solves one problem really, really well, better than humans. Like you were saying, when you drive your Tesla, it's a better than a human, you know, being can drive. But you know, the car has no idea who you are, what a city is, what, you know, the context of anything, you know, it just can do this task. How far away do you think artificial general intelligence is? And, you know, will, uh, what do you, what changes do you think we'll see as that starts to become a reality? I think we're pretty far away to tell you. That. I mean, I think that you could get some rudimentary quote unquote intelligence using compute power today. Um, but this idea of the capacity to think, the capacity, and you know, the test, the, the Turing test, the let's have a conversation, right? You can, you can train it to know a bunch of responses to a bunch of things, but the capacity to understand the question and come up with a unique answer that, 
that is, I think we're, I think we are a long, long ways away from that. So, you know, we're, we can, we can get some deep fakery in the art of, in the, you know, sort of natural artificial intelligence world. But I think that's a long, a far cry from a thinking being that is able to have a conversation of any quality. Okay. So yes. And, you know, open AI has been touting, you know, they're on the road to AGI. So you're saying not really, that's more marketing hype. I don't think, I don't think they're anywhere close. Okay. That's, that's what the audience needs to hear because, you know, there's so much hype out there in the world. Now, David, if there is like you, all the companies you seem to be investing in, or that you mentioned here, at least are software. Uh, Do you see big potential in hardware and other areas? And and would you place your money on those? Yeah, there's going to be amazing innovation in hardware. Would I put my money on it? No. Hard. Hardware is this complicated supply chain problem and innovation constantly outdating your stuff. And so I think hardware is really difficult. Now, I will will say I actually have invested in a hardware company. It's called Brilliant. It's a a control that goes on your wall. It allows you to control all your your, um, uh, connected devices. And it's it's a fantastic device, but it's really a software platform. Right, it's connected to the web, and it allows so that every time there's a new doorbell, or there's a new shade, or there's a new, you know, Sonos, that it will connect with it and allow you to control it from a single mechanism. So the mechanism itself, while a beautiful device, isn't really the issue. The value is being delivered by the software, and I just think software has the capacity to create so much more value uh, to risk and to cost that uh, I'm pretty much a software guy. I am too, honestly. You know, I, if software is where it's at. That's where you can engage a customer. That's where you can, you know, extract and provide the most value to customers and connect people and build ecosystem. That's all done in software. You know, the, the hardware is great and sometimes it's necessary, like our, our iPhones and everything else, but it, it's not where, it's like as an investor, that's a savvy point you made. So. You know, I want to wrap up by thanking FullScale for being our sponsor. You know, if you want to find software engineers uh, faster, better, and cheaper, go to FullScale.io. And I want to thank you, David, for being on the show and sharing, you know, your opinions, really good opinions about what's happening now and what what we see coming down the pipe. And if you, uh, if people want to reach out to you and get a hold of you, how would they do that? Well, they can uh, they can definitely follow me and connect with me on Twitter at at David Hornick, D-A-V-I-D-H-O-R-N-I-K. Um, but they can also email me. Feel free to email me at Hornick at lobby.vc. And uh, always happy to hear about new exciting stuff people are working on. I'm a, pretty much a Series A software investor, but I invest across enterprise, infrastructure, fintech, you know, consumer marketplaces. So uh, thrilled to hear from you. David, uh, I'm glad you're so open to people giving out your email address and everything. And I want to let people know, uh, if you want to reach me, Steve Hoffman, just go to founderspace.com and you can contact me there. You can check out my podcast. You can check out uh, all the different videos we have for entrepreneurs and you can submit your business plans. And you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. So uh, let's, uh, David, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. And 
good luck with your with lobby capital. I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Thank you so much. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.